Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. Instead of the usual kind of panel where we would talk about what color Beyonce's hair is this week or what Justin Bieber is up to, all the pop culture stuff, uh, we're doing something slightly different. I've got two very special guests. Terry Fallis uh, is an author. His new book is called, and it's right here in front of me, One Brother Shy. And uh, you can find that now in fine and not so fine bookstores everywhere. You can find it online anywhere that you buy books. Also, Bianca Murray is here and uh, she'll be talking about Hum If You Don't Know the Words, uh, which is in bookstores again right now. Both are part of the International Festival of Authors. We'll talk all about that. But first, let's just talk a little bit about the books and get people kind of familiarized with why you're both here and why you're both at the International Festival of Authors. So, Bianca, I'll, talk, I'll start with you. Your book is somewhat autobiographical, I think. It's, it's, it's not entirely so, though, but you were born and raised in South Africa, and um, you sort of use that as a starting point. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Yeah, absolutely. So while the plot is entirely fictionalized, the book was inspired by my own experience of growing up in apartheid South Africa. Um, I was born in 1976, the year of the historic Soweto uprising, uh, when hundreds and thousands of black students marched in protest of the apartheid government and the police opened fire on them with live ammunition, killing more than 100 of these children, while down the road, my care as a white baby had been entrusted to one of the very people that the apartheid government had decided was less than human, and that was my maid Eunice. Um, and writing this novel for me was... It, it was a passion. It was something I really had to do to come to grips with my privilege and the many ways in which I had benefited from the oppression of others. And is this something that has been with you since you were a child or is it something that you have come to realize in the last number of years or, or tell me about that? Yeah, I, growing up in apartheid South Africa, you don't realize as a child how much you are brainwashed because that is pretty much what happens to children in this kind of systemic uh, racist culture. And it was through loving Eunice, who was our maid, that I began to see how horrific and barbaric apartheid was. So from when I could remember, I realized that this was a terrible way of treating people, but I needed to get away from South Africa to be able to write this story. I couldn't write it when I was still so much mired in that culture. And so I only started writing this book in 2012 when we arrived in Toronto. Oh, so you've only been here for five years or yes. so. Yes. So tell me a little bit about what it's like or what it was like. Do you go back? Yeah, I go back every second year, um, yeah. and my parents come out every second year. Uh, and, I mean, obviously, post-apartheid, the country is very different. Mm -hmm. South Africa has some of the most advanced laws in the world in terms of the Constitution. They were one of the first countries to approve gay marriage. But, unfortunately, the current leadership falls far short of what Nelson Mandela was. Uh, the Rainbow Nation is no longer the Rainbow Nation, and it's extremely, extremely sad to me to see what is happening in South Africa at the moment. And is that why you left? Not at all. No? No. Um, I, my husband and I left because we just love traveling, and doing it from South Africa <laughs> was really difficult, and the currency was weak. Uh, I'm still involved in a lot of South African initiatives in terms of um, empowerment. I ran a nonprofit in Soweto helping HIV-AIDS positive orphans, and I'm still a part of that. It's just, you know, we, we needed to broaden our horizons. We're going to continue the conversation about Hum If You Don't Know the Words. It's in bookstores right now uh, with Bianca Murray. We'll get back to that. Uh, I want to turn attention over to Terry. Tell us a little bit about One Brother Shy. 
Well, I'm a member in good standing of the Write What You Know School of Writing. <laughs> uh, you can find pieces of me and pieces of my life strewn about the pages uh, of my novels, but not in an, an autobiographical sense. I just find it easier to write with authority and conviction mm -hmm. and authenticity, I hope, if I'm writing about something that I know about and care about and have experienced before. So this novel is really about identical twins, and I happen to be an identical twin. And relatively speaking, few people uh, have mm -hmm. had that experience. Uh, and I thought one day it would make its way into one of my novels, and it has in this one. Tell me a little bit about that. We'll get back to the book <laughs> in a sec. But um, I have identical twin nieces ah. and who are identical. And in fact, when you go over to their house, I often think, you know, when the first one comes up, and, you know, says, you know, what her name is. I don't want to say their names on the radio. Just right. they're a little shy about that kind of <laughs> stuff. But uh, I always think I should put, like, as they are so identical. Right. Um, but they had a little language that they spoke between them. And there was a bond there that, it, for people who aren't twins, is very difficult to understand. Did you have that? I'm not sure we had our own language, although my, my mother uh, would say that we would be yabbering away at one another <laughs> in a strange tongue when we were babies. Haven't done that for several months now, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but we, we are very close and there is a connection there that I think that uh, is sort of impossible to get your head around if yeah. you haven't uh, experienced it. Uh, but we've, uh, you know, we remain very close. We live close to one another. I still play hockey on the same line with him as I have for 50 years. Uh, and uh, we have the same mannerisms. We sound the same. If he had walked in here this morning, uh, I doubt either of you would have known. But I carry really? my passport just to confirm that is, I am. Is he a writer as well? Uh, he not in the creative sense, although he could be if he wanted to be. He yeah. is a is a good writer, and he's and he's very creative, and he's an avid photographer, and uh, uh, yeah, he writes very well. I think it was our father who engendered in in all of uh, our my parents' offspring uh, a love of language and a love of uh, a reverence for for language, and uh, I think we sort of picked that up from from my father and to a certain extent my mother. Uh, so he does write very well. He just has not chosen to write creatively, probably because I have. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. You have to do one thing different. You <laughs> play right. hockey together. Exactly. You look the same. You have to do at least one thing differently. The reviews for One Brother Shy uh, says that uh, the Stephen Leacock award-winning humorist Terry Fallis brings his usual wit and a new level of poignancy to a tender character study. Is it because you're writing about something that you feel on a different level that you feel that people are picking up a new kind of poignancy from? Well, I think there's there's a bit something a bit different about this story than from my other novels. In my earlier novels, my narrators have always been flawed in very human ways. I think of it as a mixture of hopeless, hapless, and helpless. <laughs> uh, but those are very you know you can still be a great a great person when you have those flaws. In this novel, the narrator is all of those things, but he's also damaged. He has been deeply affected by a rather extreme, humiliating, and very public bullying incident that unfolded 10 years before the novel opens, and he is still not yet back on the rails from that. It coincided with the launch of YouTube, if that isn't uh, <laughs> yielding too much information <laughs> yeah, about yeah. the story. So it's the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, so he's been deeply affected, and, and I, I wanted to take one step off my traditional path and write about a character who is really struggling with something, not just, you know, falling over his feet once in a while or saying the wrong thing.
We'll continue talking about each of the books. I want to talk about the International Festival of Authors. Um, this year, it's a it's a huge lineup. Roddy Doyle will be here. Barbara Gowdy, uh, Eden Robinson uh, will be here. But Bianca, you're taking part in a panel called "The Lives of Underdogs." Uh, it's you, Heather O'Neill, Jesse Ruddock, and you discuss love, uh, loss, and the otherness. And tell me a little bit about what you expect or what people can expect from that panel. Well, firstly, I'm so excited to be on that panel because um, when I arrived in Canada, like I said, 2012, uh, IFOA was one of the first literary events that I ever heard of. Uh, I got to be there with the uh, University of Toronto School of Creative uh, Writing, um, the Continuing Studies Program in 2014 and sit in the audience and see these amazing writers come out and talk to us. And at that point, I was still learning my craft. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I looked at these people and I just thought, oh, my word, to be one of these people, can you imagine? (laughs) So for me to even be invited and to be on this panel is a dream come true. Uh, and with Heather O'Neill as well, because I remember arriving in Canada and saying to people, you know, what Canadian writers should I read? Terry's name came up very early on, <laughs> as did Heather's. So these are the first writers that I was exposed to from a Canadian point of view. Um, you, you know, we'll we'll just be discussing our novels. There's many themes through the novels that do um, align in terms of underdogs. My book's very much about underdogs, uh, Heather's and Jesse's as well. Uh, And I'm just expecting a lively conversation with them about writing, the creative process, um, and why we pick the characters we do. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that the the notion of otherness is something that is particularly resonant with you. Yeah, very much so. Uh, In the book, the two characters, the one character is a black Corsa woman who is one of the people who's most oppressed by apartheid. And then there's a young nine-year-old girl who loses her parents to the violence of apartheid and how their paths cross and how they build this completely unusual sort of dysfunctional family almost in the midst of all of this. And it's, it's that otherness that really fascinates me. And Terry, you're taking part in two panels, uh, Uncovering the Past and True North Stories of Canada, uh, one on October 27th, one on October 28th. I'll give you all the details that you need in terms of getting tickets and all that kind of thing. Uh, choose one and tell us about it in about a minute, and we can come back and talk about it on the other side of the Well, break. the stories about Canada, I, I write a lot about Canada. Some of my novels have been set in other places, yeah. but even those that, that have been set in other places apparently have a very Canadian vibe to them. <laughs> and I think maybe we are a little bit different up here. The land, uh, the land shapes uh, our culture and it shapes how we view issues. And uh, I'm looking forward to, to being on that panel and exploring what it means to be a Canadian writer and how that reflects in our, in our writing. I think it'll be interesting when we come back on the other side of the break. I want to explore that theme a little bit with Bianca as well, who is now a South African slash Canadian writer. Uh, you, you you are based here now. You travel all the time, apparently. Uh, yeah. But you are based here now. Would you consider yourself a Canadian writer these days? Or it, it, it will always be informed by your background. Yeah, well, I became Canadian a few months ago. Congratulations. So, yes, thank you. So I do consider myself Canadian. I also consider myself South African. So there mm-hmm. is that duality. But it makes it really interesting to have that sort of oppressive racist background, but to be in this multicultural diverse city now, uh, and it feels like my two worlds collide very much. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Bianca Moray and Terry Fallis. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. 
In studio, we have two very special guests. Bianca Moray is the author of Hum, If You Don't Know the Words. Uh, we got a little snapshot of what the, the book is about. It's a semi-autobiographical fictional story about uh, life in South Africa, something that you know very well. We'll talk about that book in just a second. Terry Fallis is also here. One Brother Shy is his new book. Both books are available everywhere you buy books right now. Also, if you'd like to see and probably meet both of these authors, uh, you can do so at the International Festival of Authors. It's happening at the Harborfront Center from October 19th to the 29th. And you, there's panels that are happening all the way along here. Bianca will be at the Lives of Underdogs panel on October 25th at 8 p.m. And Terry is doing two, the 27th and the 28th, one called Uncovering the Past, one called True North, Stories of Canada. And it's that second one that's kind of uh, grabbed me here. We, we started talking about that in the, in the last segment. And we're talking about the state of Canadian literature. And Terry, I'll get to you in a second, but Bianca, you're a new Canadian, you're a new Canadian writer, but, you know, it, it's interesting when you say, uh, you know, I'm Canadian now, but also very much South African, but everyone from Canada is from somewhere else. This yeah. is, this yeah. is the very essence of being Canadian, I think, is to bring your culture to this country. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, when you, when you come as an immigrant, um, Toronto especially with its diversity it's mm -hmm. it's amazing to arrive in a city where there are so many different cultures and languages and orientations food yeah well <laughs> food as well uh, and things that in South Africa would you know that you wouldn't see these cultures necessarily mixing in the way that they do um, and being embraced in the way that they are you, you know you see that in Toronto and it's just amazing and as I said before I wouldn't have been able to write this book in South Africa because I was too much mired in that experience and it was leaving and being able to be in this kind of Canadian culture that allowed me to be able to fully express these feelings that I'd had my entire life. Uh, this book has been something that I've wanted to write my entire life but it was only once I got here that I was finally able to address these issues. And you were writing on some level before you left South Africa, but you studied here, right? Yeah. Einstein Terry was one of your professors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've been writing, I think I wrote my first book when I was seven, uh, <laughs> illustrated it as well. I'm pretty sure I ripped off Enid Blyton a lot. Yep. Yep. Um, and, and I wrote two other books in South Africa that were widely rejected by everyone. Uh, and looking back, I can understand because they really weren't very good. Um, <laughs> and when I arrived in Canada, three months after I arrived, I said, that is it. I am now going to study writing properly, which is why I si signed up at U of T School of Continuing Studies, the Creative Writing Program. And it was studying with people like Terry and studying with writers whose work I admired and whose books I had read. Uh, and that really switch things about for me and it and this book as well I was so invested in the story that I wasn't prepared to give up on the story mm -hmm. and it was rejected by publishers a hundred times more than a hundred times wow and I just kept rewriting it and rewriting it because I just I wasn't prepared to give up on the story I think that failure and rejection is one of the the most important steps in a writer's life and uh, I'll throw it I think rewriting is the actual art of writing and being told nope do it again 
is the only way that you you can flex that muscle properly. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and that also tests how invested you are in the book that you're writing. Because, I mean, I got told no many times before mm-hmm. with the previous books, but I was trying to deflect from something serious by writing humor. I did sort of Terry Pratchett spoofs. Right. Uh, <laughs> and because I knew that writing this book would be emotionally draining and I was putting off writing it. Uh, but, yeah, as you say, it's a crucible. You know, a writer is formed through that crucible of rejection. And, and it makes you decide how invested you are with something. J.K. Rowling was told not to quit her day job like 20 times or something in 20 different rejection letters before the first Harry Potter book came out. Terry, what was your path in? Well, it's an uh, apropos topic because I, too, uh, my whatever success I have had is rooted in initial utter rejection. <laughs> uh, I wrote uh, my first novel was a satirical novel of Canadian politics called The Best Laid Plans. And nobody in their right mind would have written a satirical novel of Canadian politics <laughs> as their first novel if they had hoped ever to find a publisher. And But I thought I ought to write about something that I knew about. And I worked in that world and had some views on politics. And uh, I thought there was a story to tell about how we practice politics in this country and how we might do it better. And um, when I wrote the manuscript, my first manuscript ever, I sent it out to dozens and dozens and dozens of uh, of publishers and literary agents and sat back and waited for the feeding frenzy to ensue <laughs> right. over my debut right. blockbuster novel. <laughs> and I waited and waited and the feeding frenzy seemed to be taking quite some time to get started. After a year of doing that, I had not received a single rejection letter. Wow, not even a rejection letter. I had not even made a big enough impression on the traditional publishing establishment to elicit a automatically generated rejection letter. Wow. So... It was, uh, and I must say, it, it wasn't so much my belief in the story that kept me going. It was more a desire to determine whether I had, in fact, written a novel right. that I, I kept going. And I, uh, I ended up podcasting the entire novel chapter by chapter, giving it away for free on iTunes. And it was the positive reaction to that that gave me the resolve to, to self-publish the novel initially. And which happened, and and what changed my life forever as a writer was when that self-published novel won the Leacock Medal in 2008, and I got a real publisher right away, and I've been with McClellan and Stewart ever since. So it's a strange story. It it is a strange story, but it's an inspiring story. I mean, I kept for years every rejection letter that I ever got, uh, dating back to the 80s, I think, when you actually got a letter that, <laughs> right. that you know, was in the mail, you can, in the mail yeah. that you can hang on to. And I saved all of them. And I didn't save them as a, as a way of torturing myself. Look at that. And it was a big stack. I mean, it was a large <laughs> stack of letters. Um, I kept them because they, to me, were uh, a symbol of my persistence. They were a symbol of my tenacity, you know, and I I kept thinking, and I just, while you were talking, I wrote down this quote that I remember Samuel Beckett, and I used to to think of this, when he said, fail, fail again, and then fail better. And for me, that meant something to me as these... (laughs) this box, I'd, I'd, I'd have to switch from one box to a slightly larger box if I was going to save <laughs> right. all these rejection letters. But And they're, they're still around somewhere. I still have them tucked away because for me, uh, it's a symbol of tenacity. And I love right. the idea that you just went a different way. Right. You podcasted it. 
and and ultimately ended up winning awards and, and are publishing at a very high level now. I think it was as much out of naivete as anything else, yep. but sometimes innocence and naivete can lead you through some interesting times. They certainly can. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Terry Fallis and Bianca Murray. You can find Bianca's book, Hum, If You Don't Know the Words Everywhere, ditto with One Brother Shy, Terry Fallis' new book. Uh, stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause, talking about a lot of stuff today. We're talking about two very good books. We're also talking about the International Festival of Authors that's happening at the Harbourfront Centre in Toronto. If you're not in Toronto, this show's heard across the country. If you're not here, why not come here? Buy some books, see some authors. Uh, it's happening uh, at the Harbourfront Centre from October 19th to the 29th. Uh, for more information, go to ifoa.org. You can find tickets and all that kind of stuff there. And you can see my two guests. You can see Terry Fallis talk about his new book, One Brother Shy. And I'm sure they have big stacks of them there that you'll autograph and, and sell to the Delighted people. To. If they ask, <laughs> If they ask nicely. Uh, Terry will also be taking part in two panels. Uncovering the Past on October 27th. Uh, you will be discussing familial relationships and the secrets found in their novels. Uh, also, True North, Stories of Canada, where you'll be discussing the state of Canadian literature. And then Bianca Murray, a new Canadian, congratulations, uh, will be presenting Hum, if you don't know the words there. Also taking part in The Lives of Underdogs on October 25th. And you'll be talking about love, loss, and other it all sounds fascinating. And so check out uh, ifoa.org for tickets and more information. Uh, Bianca, um, let's talk a little bit about your process then. This is the kind of thing that writers are either all about or say, I don't know, I just uh, <laughs> it just happens for me. There's a movie, and I've told this story on this show before, there's a movie called Patterson that I love. It just came out last year. Adam Driver plays a poet who just writes for himself, a little notebook, and he's constantly writing poetry. The dog eats his book of poetry, and he's, he's devastated. There's no other copies of it. He takes a long walk. He sits on a park bench. A man comes up and sits next to him, and they start talking. Turns out he's a poet as well, and the man has a gift. And he says, here's a, a present for you. And he op Adam Driver opens it up, and it's a blank notebook. And the man says, and this is the word that I loved, the line that I loved. He says, every page is a possibility. And for me, that it, it is so poignant uh, because I think sometimes as a writer, before I can kind of delineate before and after seeing that. Before, I always kind of saw pages as something that I needed to fill up. And now I see them as a possibility where I can fill them up with anything that I want. And so my process, I guess, would be to sit down and you know, try and come up with the most interesting thing that I can. But I have no pro I have no time of day I write. I have no rules. Um, Bianca, let's start with you. Do you have rules? How do you do it? Yeah, I also don't have a time of day I sit down. Um, it, it really just depends. Sometimes it's first thing in the morning. Sometimes it's at midnight. Uh, for me, the big thing is the differentiation between what we call a pantser and a plotter. So Terry and I were talking about this. He's a plotter. Uh, and for me, if I know exactly where the novel's going, I don't want to write it anymore. I lose complete interest in it. So I'm a pantser. I fly by the seat of my pants. And I very much let my characters take me places. Right. And that sounds so mystical. But, you know, if I get to know the characters and they're authentic, they will take me places that make sense. Douglas Copeland told me that he kind of hears the characters talking to him. 
Yeah. Is that, does that happen to you? It sometimes feels like you're channeling them. Certain yeah. characters will just sort of pop in your head and they won't go away and they'll force you to do research because you don't know about what it is they're carrying on about. Uh, and those are the best characters. Um, but, but yeah, it's, so there isn't this, this process for me. But I was also saying to Terry, my first book took over three years to write mm-hmm. because with your first book, you have all the time in the world until yeah. you approach yeah, yeah, yeah. someone. It's the second you know, one. The it's the second book, book. Yeah. yeah. And the second book I have to uh, <laughs> deliver in March. So I have yeah. eight months in which to write that. So I'm quickly discovering that I need a more regimented kind of process. Right. Well, it, yeah. Uh, Elmore Leonard told me once that, you know, he got up at 6 o'clock by 6.10. He's writing. And even if he was in the middle of a sentence at noon, he stopped. <laughs> and then he went and had, you know, the same lunch, I think, every day. And then went back and he wrote until 4.30 or whatever it was. But it was very regimented. But it worked for him. Terry, do you, uh, you're a little different writer. You're a plotter, which means that you know where the book is going to start and finish uh, all the way along. Uh, why that process for you? Well, I'm an engineer by academic training, <laughs> uh, though I have not practiced, practiced engineering in the formal sense for one instant in my life. I really? have a degree in engineering, <laughs> and I think very much like an engineer and view the world and the things that I do through uh, the engineer's lens, yeah. I think. So when it came to write my first novel, I had no idea how to write a novel. I don't think anyone really knows how to write a novel when they start. Mm-hmm. And I just uh, applied whatever I had learned in my past uh, to the task of trying to write a novel. And for me, it I remember outlining my essays. I remember outlining my newspaper column at, at university. Uh, and I am a born planner and probably a more extreme planner than, than most planners. <laughs> I don't write the first word in the manuscript until the entire story is completely mapped out. Uh, the outline for One Brother Shy was 85 pages long. That's four or five pages of bullet points for each chapter. And, and so it's very detailed. I mean, this yes. is, this is. but is there dialogue? Is there? Occasionally I will put in some dialogue or some of the funny lines yeah. that I want to put in that have occurred to me. Uh, but none of the sentences are there. It's just bullet points. And then when I actually write it, uh, I can commit all of my questionable cerebral powers to the task of crafting (laughs) sentences only. I'm not thinking about what is my character going to do next because I know. And it means I write write the manuscript. In essence, I write it once, but it's right at the very end of the process. And it takes me about four months of of weekends to write the 100,000-word manuscript. But I've spent the preceding 10 months or so getting to the point where I can write the manuscript in that short a time. Well, it reminds me of... uh films that are shot listed, you know, where people do drawings of each shot that they want to have. And then so you can kind of visualize what the entire movie is going to look like. Alfred Hitchcock used to say that that's where the real work was. The shooting part was just the the nuts and bolts of it. He was just like, that's the part you had to do just so there would be a film. But it was the planning that for him was the most important part. Yeah, I think that's true. And I'm in the midst of that on uh, on my next novel now. And I find that time is is really important in that process. I don't have a lot of time to do it, but yeah. if I let the issues sit in my head and steep and ferment and evolve, eventually what I think are the the parts of the story that aren't working fall away. And what's left is something that is 
worth pursuing, and that's that's how it works for me. And I can bet you that Terry does not have to rewrite his manuscript as many times <laughs> as I have to rewrite mine. So it's a much more efficient process. Well, I guess it's an efficient process. But the the thing about it, people ask me, uh, you know, what's your process? How how what should I do as a young writer? What should I do? And I say, I don't know. I don't know. Figure it out yourself. Because the only process uh, that works for me is is the one that I've developed over 25 years of, of doing it. And and beyond that, I, I can't tell you. It's going to be different for everyone. You raise a very good point. Uh, and when I do workshops on outlining, I always start them by saying, I'm not telling you you should outline your novel. Yeah. Because Bianca has written an extraordinary book. I, I read it in manuscript form. It's terrific. And that was the, the result of a pantser, as she <laughs> modestly puts it. Uh, so, and, and I went to hear Richard Wright speak once, who wrote Clara Callan, won, yeah. the, won the first Giller Prize. And he said exactly what you said, Bianca. He said, if I knew where this story was going, I could not get my rear end in the chair each morning because he loses interest in it. And the sense of discovery is what fuels his writing. Right. And I understand that. It just isn't what works for me. And yeah. I think part of our job as writers, maybe our first job as writers, is to figure out how we as individuals write best. And and to find your voice in that way. And I think that uh, the, the only way that you do that is to, like Nike says, just do it. Right. And there's no other there's no other way. It's it, it's it's like I think stand up comedy and a handful of a small handful of other arts-related crafts that you can only do and figure out if you're good at it by doing it. Yes. You can play, you know, you can practice piano, you can do all those things, but writing is just, uh, it, it's, you know, you sit there in front of a typewriter, somebody, I think Hemingway or somebody said, until beads of blood form on your forehead <laughs> yeah, and, yes. you know, and, and just do it. That's right. Hemingway is a good example. Uh, he worked very hard on on his stories uh, over and over. And I think, I think he said something like, Writing is easy. You just sit down at the typewriter and bleed. Yeah, and yeah. bleed, yeah. And yeah. it's, uh, writing doesn't feel that way to me. And when I hear others say they just struggle, struggle, it's just a miserable process, it makes me wonder whether they have figured out how they write best. Because I think it could be different. When we come back, we'll continue talking with Terry Fallis about his book, One Brother Shy, and Bianca Murray about her book, Hum, If You Don't Know the Words. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. Bit of shameless self-promotion before we get to my guests. Saturday night, 8.30, check out Pop Life on the CTV News Channel. We're coming soon to the main CTV net. I'll keep you informed about that. But this week, we have a fascinating interview with Kyle McLaughlin. He is the star, of course, of Twin Peaks and loads of other things. But he's also been involved in some projects that haven't really done all that well, like Showgirls, for instance. And we talked about setbacks, career setbacks. And, you know, if a bit of failure, much like we were talking about earlier in the show, uh, can be good and an important part of your career. Here's Kyle McLaughlin. I think it can teach you resilience, yeah, yeah. Um, and it can, it can tell you if you're hungry enough to want to stay around and keep going. Um, I love what I do. I can't even tell you why I love what I do, but I love what I do. Um, so the setbacks that came, uh, the periods of time when I wasn't working and the questions I had about geez, is this it, you know, yeah. um, they just keep you moving forward. They, re they reinvigorated me and I said, no, it's good, it's good. I, you know, you continually question, am I really, is my, does my talent hold up? Do I have something to offer, you know? And I say, yeah, I think I do. So you just keep going. 
That's Kyle McLaughlin talking about setbacks, failure, and how it can actually be good for you. And he did that on my new TV show. It's called Pop Life, 8.30 on Saturday nights on the CTV News Channel. It reruns again on 2.30 on the CTV News Channel on Sundays. Uh, check it out. It's a fun show. We also have some great panel guests this week. Uh, Tracy Melchor uh, tells some really, really fascinating stories about how she has approached uh, her career. You don't want to miss it. So tune in to Pop Life. Now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Uh, uh, Bianca Murray is here. Her book, Hum If You Don't Know the Words, is in stores right now. Terry Fallis' book, One Brother Shy, also in bookstores right now. And both will be appearing at the International Festival of Authors in Toronto. It happens at the Harbour Front Centre. For more information, go to ifoa.org. Uh, welcome back. Nice to see you guys again. So... Let's talk about inspiration. I think that if you wait for inspiration, that bolt of inspiration to hit, and you hear about it, you read about it, and when you're a young writer in particular, you, you hear about these bolts of inspiration that come. I think if you actually wait for that, you will never write anything. Terry? <laughs> I totally agree. I go to a little website called ideas.com to get my latest idea. No, I'm just kidding. I don't do that. I <laughs> wish there was an ideas.com. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be wonderful? Walk I was into about a store to write that down. Yeah, exactly. a real thing. No, no, I, I'm kidding. Yeah, I don't know where it comes from, but I think think you're right. If you sit around and wait for it, it is surely not to strike. Yeah. Uh, and I think you find the nub of a story or an issue you want to explore, and then you begin to flesh it out and build some characters and figure out how to tell the story in a compelling and thoughtful and, in my case, I hope funny way. Uh, and that's the challenge. But, yeah, it's not about sitting and waiting for the muse to strike you and then start channeling. Uh, I I wish it, it certainly isn't that way for me, at least, but uh, I think it is for some, but not for me. Well, Bianca, this is, it's a different thing for you because this is something that had been gestating in you for a long time. And, and in a lot of ways, it feels to me like it was cathartic to, to put it down on the page. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was an emotional exercise for me. It it was like therapy almost, you know. Um I needed to write this book for myself to come to terms with many of these things and also to it, it helped me realize things about myself that I didn't like realizing and that I didn't like seeing, but very much necessary for me as well. But in terms of inspiration, again, I agree with Terry, you can't sit around and wait for that. Somebody wrote that the first draft of a novel is pretty much shoveling sand into a sandbox so that <laughs> later you can build sandcastles. Right. And, and I agree with that, you know, so there's moments where you're just putting words on the page and there will be flashes of inspiration when you write, when something just comes together and crystallizes for you, either as a personal realization you have while writing or in terms of the plot. But, um, you know, it helped for me that this was a very personal story, but still that doesn't drive it day on day, just sitting down and, and getting the words out. Can we expect that the, your next book, which you're working on right now, in a much shorter timeline, as we were talking <laughs> about, uh, can we expect that the next book will will also have that personal touch as well? or Or is that something that you feel you've done and you're, you're changing things up. No, absolutely. So the, the next book is also based in South Africa, but it starts on the eve of the first democratic elections. Uh, so it looks at post-apartheid South Africa, Nelson Mandela, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, as well as the HIV AIDS pandemic in South Africa, which I saw, you know, firsthand volunteering in these communities with children who had lost a whole generation of parents. Um, so I this is, again, a personal book for me because I feel like these were issues I weren't able to tackle in the first book. 
There aren't that many well-known South African writers. Why is that, do you think? Um, the, well, there are a few. I mean, J.M. Kutsia, Nadine Gordema, you know, you, you do have, have a few of them. But South Africa, the publishing market there is not what it is here. I can tell you right now that I would never have gotten this book published in South Africa. I think something like 95% of the uh, book industry in South Africa is non-fiction books mm. because there just isn't a market for for uh, fiction in South Africa. And the writers who did well, like J.M. Kutsia, Andre Brink, Nadine Gordimer, are ones that were writing about apartheid and were therefore being published internationally because they were censored within their own country at the time. And Terry, let's talk a little bit about teaching writing. Mm. Can you teach someone how to write? No, I don't think you can, actually, Richard. (laughs) In in a way, I I don't. I I think writing is one of those things that... uh, I think you can take a good writer and make them into a better writer. Right. I'm not yet convinced that you can take a bad writer, fundamentally bad writer, and make them a good writer. I think there's something inside of us that uh, that needs to click uh, to get to that point where you can be a better writer over time. Uh, so it's uh, I'm always a bit uh, leery about writing courses. Um, because I think you either have it or, or you don't. Uh, I, luckily, the courses I've been teaching, most of the people who take them are actually very good writers. They just, they lack some confidence in their writing and they lack a sense, in a way, of, of validation right. that they're on the right path or that if they shift four degrees to the left, they'll be on the right path. And so that's where, what I try to do. I've not yet had an experience where someone uh, has shown up in, in our courses and has not been able to construct <laughs> coherent sentences. Uh, and that's I'm thankful for that. But there's more to it than just not being able to... I mean, loads yes. of people can construct a coherent sentence. It's just <laughs> not a true. very interesting coherent sentence. No, you're right. And there's a lot about uh, the art of storytelling. How do we tell this story? How do we uh, frame and structure and format the story? Where, where do we start? Where mm-hmm. do we finish? Uh, and I'm, I feel I'm still learning about that every time I write a novel. I'm trying some new things in the novel I'm currently writing that I've not tried before, which is sort of a, a discombobulated timeline. Normally, mm. I'm just start at the beginning and very push linear, through yeah. to the very linear. Yeah. And I, this is a, more like Pulp Fiction or something, yeah, where right. it jumps around on a fractured well, timeline. I'm not doing too much of it, but there uh, is at yeah. least uh, the novel opens... It's strange to say, but the novel opens in the middle of the novel. Right. And I've never done that before, and I, I like to do at least one thing different <laughs> each time so that I might grow a little bit uh, as a writer. Does that ring a bell for you? Do oh, you yeah. try and shake things up? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So the first novel, um, Home If You Don't Know the Words, has two main protagonists, Robin and Beauty, told in the first person, with the book that I'm currently working on, which is called If You Want to Make God Laugh. Uh, I've got three protagonists. Um, and that for me was a huge leap. You know, I didn't realize how difficult it would be working in a third narrator uh, who's telling their story. Um, and, and yeah, definitely, definitely challenging. And in terms of, you know, learning writing uh, and challenging yourself, in all the writing classes I was in, it was so much a case of that validation that Terry's talking about is having a writer you admire saying to you, this is good work. You know, uh, this is how you can improve it. This is how you can be better. And that's where, uh, you know, the the writing classes are, are so invaluable. 
There's a new film out about J.D. Salinger, who, and they desperately try and show the creative process, and you just can't. You cannot do it on film. You cannot show these sparks of inf- uh, of inspiration, you know, where things come from. It just doesn't work. It just kind of is something that is organic and that I think possibly only the writer really understands. Well, especially for J.D. Salinger, yeah. who really knows yeah. what his creative <laughs> process was, because he was such a, a recluse. Yeah. Uh, but it's a fascinating story. I'm looking forward to the film. I haven't seen it yet. But uh, Yeah, I don't look forward to it that much. Oh, is that right? Yeah, okay, you know what? I'm sorry and, and, to hear that. Well, and it's just because, you know, he is someone who was all about authenticity and, well, the phonies, right? The, the, the Catcher in the Rye is all about phonies yeah. and phoniness. Uh, and, and his rejection of that, and yet this movie feels fake and phony at uh. every step along the way. Everything that J.D. Salinger, in his limited output, stood for uh, seems to have gone the opposite way in this film. Um, we've just got about a minute and a half left. Um, what are you reading right now? Uh, I am reading uh, another biography about Ernest Hemingway. I, I'm in writing mode now, so I tend right. to read nonfiction when I'm actually writing. Uh, and I have this strange fascination with Ernest Hemingway. I don't, I don't like his writing. I don't, I don't read his <laughs> books, but I'm fascinated by his place in the literary history of uh, of the world and, and his love of daiquiris yeah, exactly. and six-toed cats. <laughs> yes, exactly. He's a fascinating guy. I mean, a, a beast and not a not a nice person generally, but. Uh, but Paris in the 20s is kind of where I would like to have been. <laughs> Absolutely. And Bianca, what are you reading right I'm now? I'm reading John Boyne's The Heart's Invisible Furies, uh, yeah. his latest one. He will, he will be at IFOA, uh, and he's a bit of a literary hero of mine since The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. So, uh, And that's just phenomenal. Really, really good book. Well, you can check out the books of both my guests at the International Festival of Authors or at your local bookstore or at Amazon.ca or wherever it is that you buy books. Um, Bianca Murray, the book is called if, Hum, If You Don't Know the Words. It's a great title. Thank you. Your, and your new title is what? If You Want to Make God Laugh. See, another great title. <laughs> titles, I, I have trouble with titles. I love that. And then Terry Fallis, his book is called One Brother Shy. Uh, again, available everywhere you buy fine books. Check out more information about the International Festival of Authors at the I. FOA.org and uh, go see both my guests if you want more of them, and I know that you do. Uh, go check them out on their panels uh, Uncovering the Past and True North Stories of Canada. Terry will be speaking at both of those, and Bianca at The Lives of Underdogs. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Andre on the board, and thank you both for being here. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Richard.